1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For centuries, we've been fascinated by the illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages. But how much do we know about the countless makers, collectors and connoisseurs who took care of these manuscripts behind the scenes? Christopher de Hamel is the author of a new book, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club. And he spoke to Emily Briffitt to introduce some of these extraordinary people. From a Norman monk and a Florentine bookseller to a rabbi from Central Europe, a Greek forger and an American woman with a spectacular library.
3: We're going to be talking about your new book, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club, and hopefully meeting a few of the characters behind the stories you tell within the book. So I guess it makes sense to ask you as my first question, what is this manuscript club that you talk about?
4: Um, there isn't such a thing as a manuscript club. We invented that completely. It's a, um, it's a joke, really, on the original title of Pickwick Papers, which is was originally called uh, The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club and when we planned this book um, we, we we originally called it The Manuscript's Men I rather like the sort of rhythm of that rather like The Monument's Men and then when the book was finally almost ready I mean virtually in proof they said well Every reviewer is going to begin and say, "Well, what about women then?" Um, and there are plenty of women in it. So the title is really came in at the very end. But the idea, the sort of theme, the the the, the 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 sort of connection behind it is that if you have a passionate interest in any subject, it can be, in my case, manuscripts, but it could be butterflies or railway engines or sport or, or, or Jane Austen, um, and you go to, say, a conference on that subject. Um, Everyone you meet meets as absolute equals because you all have... An interest in common. With all kind of experience going to a conference on a specialized subject and whoever you meet, whoever you talk to, you meet as complete equals, whether they're old or young or rich or poor or whatever their background, suddenly uh, because of that interest they immediately become your friends and your colleagues and we all know that, we've all experienced it. And the idea of this is to take that kind of confraternity, um, that shared excitement and instead of going across the world We go right back through history. So I've invented a club. I mean, it it doesn't exist. There isn't a club. You could call it anything. Um, But that sort of band of friends over the last thousand years. So I have plucked out from anywhere people who, like me, are passionately interested in manuscripts. And I kind of imagine what it would be like to meet them, to talk to them, and to learn what it was about them uh, that inspired them. That's really the idea. So there isn't a club, it's imagined, but it's what it would have been if there was one. And posthumous, I suppose most of them are dead, so there we are.
3: Other than their love of manuscripts, is there anything that these 12 people share in common?
4: All people share different things in common, but we've tried to choose 12 people who are completely different. Um, There's no point in writing about 12 people who are exactly the same. Um, So um, I've tried to choose examples of people who are interested in manuscripts for very different reasons. Religious reasons, perhaps. Um, Collectors. Dealers. Um, connoisseurs, historians, editors, forgers, thieves, librarians, curators, patrons, illuminators, uh, um, you know, anybody, anybody who has devoted their life to a manuscript or to a group of manuscripts. Um, And I kind of imagine, you know, they're going to be people very unlike each other. And to take one example, the Duke de Berry. He was the brother of the King of France, died in, uh, in 1416. Um, man of immense wealth, brother of the King of France. Rich, autocratic, proud, difficult, despotic, probably not a terribly nice man. Get him in his library after dinner. I know. We would both enjoy ourselves. And I'd pull books off the shelves and he'd say, look at this one. And I'd say, what about that? And I'd say, that's Neapolitan. And he would say, is it? I bought that in Spain. And he'd say, oh, and you know, and he'd tell me about the Illuminators. And well, I, you know, I know we'd have fun. And it's that sort of way that um, a shared interest brings these people, you know, brings, brings these people together. So what do they have in common? In a way, as little as possible, except we all love manuscripts.
3: I think one story you tell in your book is of the Duke de Berry leaving an important meeting to go and talk to these
4: well, they were dealers um, yeah yeah, yeah I, sh- I should perhaps emphasize this is not fiction i mean this this is this is proper history. um I haven't invented anything. Um, there is a story about uh, well, the Duke de Berry himself um collected very... he was a, he was a collector he um there are people now. Who are collectors, and there are people who are not collectors, and the world is divided between those two? Um, the Duke was a collector he loved accumulating things and he collected many things, including relics and jewels and manuscripts. those were probably his three great interests and there is this story about how he was attending a government meeting um, in the early 15th century uh, over the the, uh, the Regency of the Long Dock quite important political meeting. Um, And the word came in that some dealers had arrived from Venice with some some jewellery to show him. And he left the meeting to go and talk to them. Everyone was astonished. Um, But that, that's a real, I, I know collectors like that.
3: Where do you think this fascination for collecting maybe came from?
4: um that is an an enormous question i suspect since the beginning of time there have been people who are collectors and people who are not collectors and we all know people who are both and um anyone who is a collector um will begin as a child um you know most great collectors it can be art or anything you know they begin when they're about 10, they collect feathers and stamps and coins and postcards and uh, and, 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 and people do it and they go on to doing it. This is not a book about collectors. I mean, collecting manuscripts is is one way of appreciating them. Quite a number of the people I'm writing about were, n- were not actually collectors, but the Duke de Berry was. Um, and that kind of instinctive, uh, that desire to own something. I actually love collecting things. I can understand that, but... Half my brothers don't, you know. Some people do, some don't.
3: I think one of the things you talk about with the Duke de Berry is that he was interested in n- almost collecting those with a known history or a known past. I think it's something you talk about with a couple of the other figures in almost no- unknowing and understanding the provenance of a manuscript and that almost increasing the value.
4: We are historians and so are you and you, we all know um, we all know the problem and the difficulty of using uh, archival material from five or six or 700 years ago and trying to draw a story out of it. And one of the, the great things, one of the great uh, resources we have for the Duke de Berry is the inventories of his collections, which are published and extremely detailed um, and they very often record not only what he had, but where it came from and who it had belonged to. And very often, very interestingly, who made them, who the artists were, what it cost, where they were kept, what happened to them, how he traded with them, what he did to them, how he altered them, how he used them. And by going through those, there one can see, one can really share the experience of what a modern collector does. Um, here was a man who was clearly interested in provenance, That sort of sense, and it can be a manuscript, it doesn't have to be, that sense that you have an object, a work of art, and you hold it in your hands or you prop it up in front of you and you know where it's been, you know who painted it, you know how it survived, you know why it was made. Um, And the kind of knowing about it and wanting to know about it is really, to me, is evidence of a proper... Um, collector and connoisseur, but he's late 14th century. I mean, so it's a long time ago, and you can get that real... He's really the first collector of books in Europe where one can really begin to understand that thrill, that titillation, that excitement he had on acquisition, which he clearly did.
3: I think one of the things you also see with Robert Cotton, who's someone else in your book, you also see that mass collection...
4: Yes, Cotton was also a collector, Um, very much a collector. I've put him down more as an antiquary. Um, I don't know whether he was as much of a connoisseur as the Duke de Berry. I don't think he cared so much about whether they were decorated or how they were illuminated or even who'd made them. What Cotton was interested in was putting together a resource for national history. He was born in the late 16th century um, and died in the reign of, 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 of Charles I, so he's right over that very end of the Elizabethan period, beginning of the the Stuarts. And uh, England was in a whole period of political and, uh, and constitutional f- uh, 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 turmoil. Less than a hundred years earlier, all monasteries had been forcefully closed in England. England had become Protestant and had broken away from Rome and countless thousands of manuscripts had been destroyed or scattered or thrown out. And cotton becomes obsessed with the idea of gathering in the resources, the raw material of British history. And he wants to make a resource which he kept in Westminster, in the Palace of Westminster, which would be used really by by government. He was establishing precedent through manuscripts. So he's a different kind of collector than the Duke de Berry. I don't think he... He probably didn't hold them in his hands and luxuriate over their beauty, but I think he was uh, he was fascinated by rare texts and he has... The largest number of Anglo-Saxon language manuscripts ever put together by anyone. Uh, He he owned the manuscript of Beowulf. He owned the Lindisfarne Gospels. He owned two copies of Magna Carta. He had all these kind of these early, early, early cornerstones of of of, um, of national history. That was what he was interested. in.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search.
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra slash History Extra. Hola.
0: Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend.
2: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account
4: login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
3: And this went on to become the British Library, is that correct?
4: Well, ultimately, um, I mean, in his lifetime, he left the collection to his children and then to his his grandson, gave the collection to the nation. Um, It then had a rather turbulent time in the 18th century, and there was a fire in the 1730s, and quite a lot of it was was damaged. Um, and a couple of decades after that, it became part of the core foundation of what then became the British Museum, and is now called the British Library. So the Cotton Collection is still together, and is still a resource of the core material of, of British history.
3: On the note of the kind of different values of the manuscripts, I think... Today, we might cherish them for their value to connecting us to the past. But obviously, some of the characters you mentioned in the book, manuscripts were more relatively new. So how would you say the value of manuscripts has perhaps changed over time?
4: I don't quite know what you mean by the value. Do you mean the commercial value of manuscripts or do you mean the importance of them? Because I think I think they have always been valuable. There's never been a time when an illuminated manuscript was not worth a lot of money, and they still are. They were very expensive to make. They were traded in the Middle Ages. There's certainly good evidence of uh, second-hand trade uh, in manuscripts from at least the late twelfth century onwards. Uh, There were certainly places in London and Paris in the fifteenth century where you could buy and sell manuscripts, and they have always been worth a lot of money, and they still are, and you can follow through the whole history of the market for manuscripts, and you know, they were making a great deal of money in the 18th century, and they make make a great deal of money now, and they are immensely valuable, um, or some of them are. What has changed is the taste in what people were interested in, and some things were relatively more valuable uh, then than they are now. So, for example, in the 18th century, as you can perhaps imagine, people loved um quite late manuscripts they liked classical texts they liked that sort of high renaissance taste they regarded that very early stuff as crude and primitive and a carolingian something something which to us would be immensely precious some carolingian merovingian manuscript with rather barbaric decorations which we find fabulous they thought was just simply bad um and they didn't care about them but generically manuscripts have always been have always been precious um They cost a lot when they were made, and before... About 1,100, most books were made by monks and mostly belonged in religious contexts in some way or another. But by about 1,200, there were professional bookshops, professional makers and private collectors. People owned them at home. Uh, They paid a great deal of money for them. And I think that kind of sense that a book is something rather precious, something that is to be looked after and handled carefully and not thrown away, uh, probably goes right back to a, a culture when manuscripts were among the most expensive things anyone ever bought.
2: I just
3: wanted to touch on a point that you mentioned there. I think we almost associate uh, manuscripts in that very religious context, especially the sort of medieval. For example, you've, you include St. Anselm in your book. But I think we often think very Christian context. But you also bring in David Oppenheim, who's obviously more in the Jewish context could you tell us a little bit about him?
4: We tend to think of manuscripts in a in a kind of quick sense as being mostly religious um, of course many of them are not in the early middle ages the relatively few people who could read and write tended to be members of the church literacy went with religion this applies to both Christianity uh, and to Judaism um, both of which, of course, existed throughout all of medieval Europe. And so the very early books are mostly, will tend to be of Christian interest. So they'll be Bibles, service books, prayer books, uh, lectionaries, and so on, Um, by about mid-12th century, you get the rise of the universities and the beginnings of the uh, professional, uh, professional occupations of lawyers and, 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 and um, uh, doctors and, and others um, uh, whose jobs required, required books. And, the, and literacy really moves out of the control of the church uh, in the course of the 12th century. And of course, for most of the Middle Ages, there are all those books which are not religious. There's history, there's music, there's all the cla- all classics. Every classical text we have survives through a medium of a manuscript. Um, there's philosophy, science, medicine, travel, uh, alchemy, uh, geography, uh, um, uh, poetry, um, uh, botany. I don't know. I um, every every subject. Will be covered, and by the late Middle Ages, probably most books are generally not religious or not, not so much so. Yeah, I think I think you get both. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Oppenheim. Um, I brought him in because um, well, you can tell by the fact that I'm called Christopher that I am not Jewish. Um, but I find Jewish history extraordinarily. Interesting, or the culture, the, the, the culture of manuscript production of Jewish manuscripts runs right through the whole of medieval Europe. There are people making and decorating and using and binding and, uh, uh, and reading books exactly as their counterparts in the Christian world were doing, but they're doing it in a different language and they're doing it from a different direction. And those two kind of parallel worlds are extraordinarily interesting. And, 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 and here uh, I've chosen one great collector from uh, Moravia and Central Europe who was gathering up and using medieval Hebrew manuscripts in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, not as antiquarian objects, but using them for their texts. He's using them for rabbinical authority. And part of what a rabbi does is to have to answer questions um, on matters of authority, and he's using these as as an enormous resource uh, for understanding Jewish history and, and, and for preserving the words and the beliefs and the doctrines and the statements of his predecessors going back through hundreds of years. And it's just a very, very different way of using books. Uh, unlike, say, the Duke de Berry, or certainly the Abbe Reeve, who comes into, also comes into the 18th century, he didn't care a jot about condition. He doesn't mind if they're in poor condition. He doesn't, want, doesn't care whether they're illuminated. In some ways, if they're in bad condition, he almost prefers it because it shows the book has been used and used and read and that's what it was made for and it's really, really been useful. And it's a very refreshing and very different way of looking at books. And um, It's a bit of a freak to put him in, but it's a fascinating chapter.
3: Okay, you mentioned also the Abbe Reeve there. What was his interest? Could you tell us a bit more about that?
4: The Abbe Reeve is 18th century, 18th century French cleric And um, it's interesting that kind of antiquarianism in Europe tended to to remain within the church right up until the early early 19th century. And so he trained as a cleric, and he was a parish priest uh, originally near Avignon. But his passion, his real obsessive, total, overwhelming passion was rare books, early printing and medieval manuscripts. And uh, he came to Paris and he got himself a job working as advisor to different collectors and libraries, and he was difficult, he was quarrelsome, he was complicated, he was, he promised things that he never delivered, he must have been an infinitely frustrating person to know. But God, he knew his manuscripts. And he writes about them. And he really, he's really the first person who kind of formulates those whole questions of how old is it? Where was it made? Who made it? How do we know? Is it real? Is it overpainted? What's it worth? Where has it been? Who's owned it? How rare is it? Will you ever find another? And all those kind of questions which are terribly important now for both collectors and libraries um, are really formulated. He of introduces connoisseurship into the study of manuscripts in the 18th century and it's uh, it's fascinating to watch that happen
3: the way you've approached your book is to talk about how almost having that conversation and meeting the characters and this is something you get really get a flavor for their personality and their interests. how did you almost approach these people
4: one has to be realistic in doing any piece of historical research um I had to choose people, well, first of all, over the widest possible range of backgrounds. So there's, you know, there's a monk, there's a prince, there's a poor man, there's a rich man, there's a librarian, there's a mix, there's all sorts, there's all, every kind of person in there. Um, so first of all, you want a great deal of variety and over as much of Europe as possible. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is there has to be, uh, there have to be people about which we have enough information to be able to write a chapter I mean that is just a sheer practical question. So I've got one chapter for example on the illuminator Simon Benning who was born probably in in, in 1483 and died in 1561 so he's very late. Um, But we have quite a lot of archival information about him and I've been to the archives in, in Bruges, where it is mostly, and, and have been through those ledgers and have picked up references to, to, to him and where he was and, and his membership of the Guild and when he, when he qualified as a master and all those kinds of questions. One can actually document his life quite well. And he's a marvellous illuminator. I mean, he can paint like a, like, a, like a genius. I mean, he is fantastic. But there are other great illuminators of the late Middle Ages whose names we don't even know. So um, you can't write a chapter about someone if you can't even begin to find out anything about them. So so uh, the, uh, the ultimate answer to your question, why I chose those 12, each one of them has some resource or enough of a resource to be able to tell a story. We one can't completely work in the dark. So the Duke de Berry has his inventories, the the, uh, the Cotton Library survives, the Oppenheim Library survives by a complicated route. Um, it's now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and I've been to look at a lot of it. And um, so one has to have something where there is material. But um, uh, Sir Frederick Madden is one chapter. Sidney Cockrell is another chapter. Both those two kept diaries, detailed diaries, every day of their lives for their adult lives, from their late teens right up to their, um, the time of their deaths, um, and both, uh, both still unpublished. Um, and both uh, both those have provided information that oh, you can you can tell a story there. There's a great deal. There's a great deal to say.
3: One thing I wanted to pick up is you said about in your choices, you're trying to pick lots of people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses. Now, one member of your manuscripts club could perhaps be seen as a somewhat strange inclusion to the group. Um, Why did you choose to include a forger? (laughs) (laughs)
4: Uh, Forgery is a fascinating a fascinating subject. Uh, museums that put on exhibitions of forgeries usually get tremendous audiences. There is something altogether fascinating about faking something and fooling people and those whole questions of what is real and what isn't and what matters and what doesn't and whether it's old and how old it is and how it's come from and where it's been takes us to the absolute core of connoisseurship so that whole way of dealing with forgeries is itself a a, a tremendously important part of the history of the taste um, of art or or manuscripts or any, any kind of work of art Uh, The man in question was Constantine Simonides. He was himself absolutely a manuscript obsessive. He qualifies on every front for inclusion in my imaginary club of people. I'd love to have met the man and many people did. Um, He was everything he said about himself proves on analysis probably to be invented. He changed his biography, he changed his name, he changed his nationality, he's moving around all the time. He's, he's a conjurer of manuscripts, but he was a Greek and he pretended that he'd been a monk um, On Mount Athos, and he pretended that he had collections of manuscripts of extraordinary antiquity. Um, And wherever he went in Europe, and he traveled all over Europe, but but especially around England, he would produce whatever manuscripts people most wanted to see. So for classicists, he produced lost classical texts. For Christian scholars, he produced contemporary manuscripts of the Gospels in Greek. You know, he produced travel books, he produced lost biographies, he produced histories, many of which. Totally deceive people, and some, even now, it's not absolutely clear what what he made and what he didn't make. It's a kind of utterly, utterly fascinating. He he is a man of a of a manuscript culture. He understands that world. He's he's obsessed with them. He's he's longing to produce them. Is he of course he's a forger, but is he is he doing it deceptively? Is he just recreating what didn't survive and should have survived. Was he putting right uh, the, the, the 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 troubles of time? Um, there's something absolutely totally fascinating about the man. No, I think he's a he's he qualifies. For, he's definitely one of my club.
3: How did people? How did people react to him at the time? Did it become known that he was a forger at the time, or is this something that was discovered later? Oh, no,
4: it was certainly known. That the, well, it was gradually realised in the course of his life that there was something very odd about them, and he, was, he, was, he fiercely divided the world between those who supported him and those who, who despised him and who questioned him. Um, it was exactly the moment uh, that Darwin was publishing The Origin of Species, 1859, when he started turning up these early Christian papyri that appeared to prove from the, really from the lifetime of the evangelists, the authenticity of the Gospels. And of course, there were people who cared immensely about that, who were longing, 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 longing to prove that the Gospels were true at the same time as there were people who were, who felt licensed by by Darwinianism to dismiss it all as a fable. And he, he comes at just that moment and um, so it was divided up very much between those who believed him and those who didn't and it's one of those things that you can tell a lot about any civilization by what it is they forge um in the middle ages, people forged documents they they forged land title in the time of say robert cotton in the 17th century they were forging ancestors they wanted they wanted families they wanted coats of arms they wanted genealogies in the 19th century they begin forging manuscripts and that begins to, that tells us quite a lot about uh, the, the 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 sort of psychology of the nineteenth century, um, early twentieth century, I think people were probably forging banknotes uh, and money. I don't know whether we forge money now, but we do forge financial deals. That's something that clearly, clearly matters now. Um, but the forging of art is itself a fascinating byproduct, a sideline of the history of art. And did they realise he was a forger? Yes, they did. And in the end, he admitted he was a forger up to a point, And then he began to name perfectly real manuscripts, which did exist, which he said he'd forged. And he absolutely didn't. So again, he's playing this game of now you see it, now you don't. Uh, uh, fooling the experts is something that's always a fascinating subject. And I think he loved doing that. Um, people quite like doing it now.
3: Obviously, the theme of your book is about this conversation and this sitting down with these people. But if you could pick just one of them to come and sit down and have round for dinner, who would you want to meet? Who would be your personal choice?
4: These are always difficult questions because as a historian, I would, we would be obliged to choose somebody who is little documented about whom we know very little. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to meet someone we know nothing about and to ask them questions and to find out information? But if you did then would anyone believe you? I mean, if you came back with some extraordinary interview with someone who worked in Charlemagne's court and you said, he said, we went here and we did this and did that, whatever, uh, your fellow historians are going to say, rubbish, you made that up. Um, So there would be no documentation. Um, I think if you're really going to offer me this kind of magic chance, I suppose I'd have to go back to the very beginning where there isn't so much information. Say, the Duke de Berry probably wasn't a terribly nice man, but he had, gosh, he had marvellous manuscripts. Probably the nicest person among my dozen is Vespasiano de Basticci. He was a bookseller in 15th century Florence, and just at the moment when printing was beginning to come in. He overlaps with the invention of printing and he's a passionate defender of manuscripts as against printing but everything we know about him, everything he writes uh, all his letters, everyone who's met him, everyone who talks about him, he knew everybody there's a great deal of information on him and he comes over as just likeable I think he was chatty and easy to talk to, he was a good gossip he was funny, he tells stories about people. In old age he wrote uh, little biographies of many of the people he'd known and they are very, very amusing. Um, I think he would have been, I think you would probably have had most fun with him. Whether he'd have talked you much, we didn't know. I'd quite like to meet Anselm. I've never met a saint. Um, he was, again, he was Clever. He was very sharp. He's very intellectual. He's very philosophical. But he also comes over as likeable. Um, I think he would be gentle. I think he would be sensible. I think he'd be attentive. Um, I don't think I would have had much fun with the Abbe Reeve. He'd have made me pay for dinner. Um, but I would have flattered him, and I would have got information out of him. Um... I'd like to meet all of them, actually. I don't mind. All people, like all manuscripts, are different, and each one has their own story to tell.
3: If these figures could be transported to modern day, how do you think they would look back on themselves and their role and their passion and involvement with manuscripts?
4: I think that what runs right through this story is the manuscripts themselves. Here we are talking about a period of six, seven, eight, nine, nine hundred years ago, um, and it seems all so long ago and all a different world and all forgotten, but the manuscripts which they all knew and they all owned or handled or read or bought or sold or tried to sell or collected or examined or edited or didn't know or whatever, they still exist. Many, many of them still exist. And I think that is what would astound if some of these people, if they could come back now and you take them up to the British Library or to the Morgan Library in New York or to, 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 the, to the, the State Library in, uh, uh, in Munich or whatever, and you would bring out the books and they would say, good God, I remember that. That was a da 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 and away they would go and they would, it would be the manuscripts, I think, that that would astound them, would thrill them. The Duke de Berry built castles for himself all across France. If you'd asked him, I expect he would have thought that his indestructible stone castles would last forever. He would be astonished, I think, that hundreds, literally over a hundred of his fragile illuminated manuscripts still exist. Um, They're still great treasures, they're still adored his Tre Richot is probably the most famous manuscript in the world That's that 's that 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 French uh, grand French book of ours with that uh, the calendar at the front famous calendar with the peasants doing the different activities of the month and great round arched uh, uh, heavens above um, that manuscript. He would have been amazed to find it reproduced all over the world. And that same manuscript was seen in the 16th century by Simon Benning, the subject of my chapter 5. It was seen again in, uh, in the mid-19th century by Sir Frederick Madden, the subject of... Chapter 10, it was seen again by Sidney Cockrell who took uh, uh, Bernard Shaw to see it in Chapter 11 and I've been to see it several times myself. And in a way, that that is part of the sort of bond that, 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 that brings the club together is these objects. And I think that's what would thrill them more than the fact the world is different, things are different. But that love of they'd be thrilled to know that what they cared about are still being looked after and will go on for hundreds of years after we've gone. Um, The club is not over yet.
0: That was Christopher de Hamel, His book, The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club, is out now published by Penguin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.